In fourth grade, I uh, remember this activity that we did where it was like, imagine aliens came into our classroom and they know nothing about our world um, and you're trying to explain to them how to do something. I don't remember exactly what it was. I remember at some point, one of us said like, uh, one of the directions we gave them was like, open, you know, grab the doorknob and open the door. And the teacher said, you know, what's a doorknob? What's a door? So trying to get us in this mindset that if aliens came here, they don't share our concept of anything. They don't um, share, you know, I don't believe in aliens, but this is kind of the thought experience is that they don't know our words, they don't know our vocabulary, they don't have a concept of anything we do. And so we had to try to explain this to these aliens that held no shared knowledge with us. And you know, so imagine that aliens came to a baseball game. How could you explain what is happening at a baseball game? You might say, um, well, the batter steps up to the plate and then tries to hit the ball that the pitcher throws. And then the alien might ask, what's a batter? And you know, it's kind of weird that we have two batter can mean either somebody swinging a bat or it can mean cake batter. And so that's a little confusing. They might ask, what is a plate? Well, there's the one you step on on the ground, but you also eat off of plates. Uh, they might ask, um, what is a ball? Well, you know, I guess there's a throwing ball, but then you're like, I'm going to a ball later tonight, you know, to a dancing thing. Or they might ask you, what is a pitcher? Well, a pitcher can be this person throwing the ball, or it can be a pitcher of water. And so they don't know what any of these concepts are. They don't know any of these things. And why are you trying to hit the ball? And you quickly realize all the things that we uh, tend to take for granted, things that we assume are, are just normal that everybody knows. And let's imagine the aliens have been sent by their commander to discover what is important and valuable to beings living on planet Earth. What, what really matters to these things called humans? And let's imagine that they landed a week ago, last Sunday. They would discover that 70,000 human beings paid between $4,000 and $75,000 and traveled across the country to watch some guys fight over an animal-skinned ball on a patch of grass. I think you get what I'm talking about. Super Bowl Sunday. What would they discover Last Sunday, we, you know, this oblong ball, why are they fighting down there? They would dis also discovered that another 112.3 million people watched these guys fight over a ball on a patch of grass from their homes, uh, perhaps with other people and snacks and, you know, a whole party thrown uh, to watch this thing. And uh, they would also discover that some groups of people spent $7 million for a chance to tell other people about themselves for 30 seconds uh, at certain times where you took a break from watching the guys on the patch of grass fighting over a ball. And before the battle of the ball started, um, they would see everyone stand up, remove their hats, put their hands on their chest, and stare at a piece of cloth flapping around in the breeze and s listen to somebody sing or sing along with somebody singing a song that's actually about the piece of fabric flapping around in the breeze. And this would be our national anthem. And then they would also observe how humans react to men, the men on the field fighting over the ball. Sometimes the people who all, I can't remember the jersey colors, I'll just go with Packers and Bears. So remember, all the people that are wearing Packer colors, you know, green and gold, they get excited every time the green and gold guys on the field do something. They stand up and they cheer, and any time the team with the blue and orange colors does something, they kind of boo. And then there's the people that are wearing blue and orange that they do the exact opposite that the people 
wearing green and gold uh, do is that anytime something good happens for the green and gold guys, they boo. Anytime something happens for the blue and orange guys, they are cheering. And after this, what would be these aliens' conclusions about what human beings value? And of course, absur- observing human beings for one day for a couple hours doesn't tell us everything about what we value, what's important to us. But they would certainly see um, how invested we are in a group of guys fighting over uh, an animal skin ball uh, on a patch of grass. Millions watch it. We have parties for it. We spend our money, time, and energy on it. It directly affects our mood, you know, some of us. We buy and wear special clothes for it. And at the event, you would also see them give honor and respect to a piece of fabric hanging on a pole and singing to it. And so what would they conclude about what is important to human beings if they came and visited for a couple hours last Sunday? And the message for today, as I said, is to move us into the season of Lent, which begins on Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, and it lasts for six and a half weeks before we reach Easter. And so this message and next Sundays will be helping us enter into that. And during Lent, people often ask a particular question. What's the question that people ask during Lent? Throw it out to me. What are you giving up? What are you giving up for Lent? And this can be the ten to be our focus for Lent, but there's a purpose behind giving up something for Lent because we don't just give something up. Um, if we do only that, we've missed what Lent is about. We have an author and speaker um, named Ruth Haley Barton who describes Lent as an invitation to return to God, an invitation to return to God. And she says the real question of Lent is, how will I find ways to return to God with all my heart? And this, she says, brings up another question. Where in my life have I gotten away from God, and what are the disciplines that will enable me to find my way back? And so this whole thing is about returning back to God. And often Lent, Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, and there's a tradition in the church where people gather together. It's called Ash Wednesday because um, you'll take ashes, and they'll get made on each person's a little cross on each person's forehead for Ash Wednesday. And this is inspired by a verse from Genesis 3.19 that says, You are dust and to dust you will return. And Ash Wednesday reminds us of our humanity and our mortality, which basically is reminding us that we are not God. We are humans. We will die. We are dust, and to dust we will return. We aren't God. And this action also acknowledges the Ash Wednesday, ashes on your forehead, also acknowledges our sinfulness, connecting us back to the Old Testament uh, practice where when they were mourning over their sin and repenting, they cover themselves with ashes, And so these six and a half weeks of Lent are a pathway that leads us directly to the foot of the cross on Good Friday, where Jesus died the death we deserve, and then three days later rose again on Easter Sunday. And during Lent, we recognize our desperate need for Jesus as our representative and as our substitute, whose atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for our salvation. And so as it's leading us there to the foot of the cross, we're coming to see, I really need this. This isn't just... Good Friday, a thing we do, but I really need the cross. We're coming and you know, mourning our sin and recognizing our mortality and our humanity and our sinfulness. And so day, today and for the next week and a half before Ash Wednesday and March 2nd, I want us to kind of do an audit of our lives uh, where we step back and observe what our lives tell us about what really matters to us. What, how is the way, or what does the way you live Show other people about what's of greatest importance to you and of greatest value. 
And so what we're trying to do, in a way, is to look at our lives from an outsider's perspective, like aliens who have come to see what matters most to these human beings on Earth. And to determine this, they'd maybe observe what we spend our money on, how we spend our time, what we're afraid of happening, what we're afraid of losing, what we get angry or frustrated about, what we turn to for comfort, what we do for fun, what brings us joy, what we get excited about. And so I want us to do an audit of our lives to answer the question, where in my life have I gotten away from God and how can I return to Him with all my heart? And we're going to consider this by looking at the biblical theme of idolatry. And Katie read um, Exodus 24, the Ten Commandments. And the very first commandment is talking to us about not having other gods before God. But we need to understand the context. This isn't just God coming to some people and saying, hey, you have to have no other gods before me. And then they're like, okay, we'll do that. But there's a context here. Because Exodus 20, uh, verse 2, it says this. I'll read verse 1, 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so there's a context here of, of already established relationship that God has come into this nation's life. They're in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And God comes in and he takes them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, so that they can be free. And so God has already redeemed them. He's already rescued them. He's already saved them. And at the same time, there's also a future reality that they are not yet where God wants them to be. That he says, I'm going to give you the land that I promised to your ancestors. I'm going to bring you into that. So I've taken you out of slavery. I have this future for you that I've promised, that I've planned, and I'm taking you into. It's uh, an inheritance that they're going to receive. And as they get to the promised land, what's in the promised land is a whole bunch of people worshiping other gods. And so in between coming out of slavery in Egypt and getting to the promised land, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one who brought you out of this. And then in uh, verse 4, right after he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven, in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And so for these ancient people, many times their gods were put into uh, a, sh- a form, a shape, a little statue um, it could be a big statue, it could be a little statue, and they would worship it. They bow down before it. And the Old Testament calls these idols, and the act of worshiping them is idolatry. And so, while many people don't have a statue today that they worship, although some do, um, people do not even just in like, oh yeah, you eat over in Africa or something like that. No, in the United States, people have things that they sit before and think that it's going to do something for them. It helps them connect with spiritual reality or some ultimate reality outside them. And our, even though we maybe don't have all these physical statues in our houses, our situation is very similar to the ancient Israelites. Because if you've trusted in Jesus, God has come into the house of slavery. He's redeemed you from it. He's rescued you from it. Your slavery to sin, Satan, and death. He's brought you out of that. But we have not yet arrived to where God is going to take us, ultimately. Is that there is a promised land before us that God says, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to make this whole earth new. Heaven is going to come to earth. He's going to make all things new. And that's the inheritance we wait for. So we're in between our redemption, our salvation, and then the promise, even more future salvation and redemption that God has in store for us. We stand between them. A salvation that's already happened and a future that has not yet happened, which we wait for. Between these two, God says to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery 
you shall have no other gods before me. And the fact that God has to tell us not to put other gods before him uh, tells us that that's a very real danger and temptation for us. He wouldn't have to say it if that wasn't something that he knows people are prone to. He knows that we're prone to putting other gods before him. And so what is a god? What, what does it mean to have a god? Well, in uh, Martin Luther's large catechism, he says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And I encourage you to write this down. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, or confiding could be relying on, trusting on, depending on, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. So if your heart is not clinging to and confiding in God, then it is clinging to and confiding in some, something else that is not God, to a, a false God. And the question isn't whether, whether you worship, but what you worship. We were made as worshiping creatures. Everybody worships something. It's just a question of what is it that we're worshiping. And our hearts will always cling to and put confidence in something. We will always trust and rely upon something. We will always worship. And the question is whether we will worship the one true God or an idol, a false God. And the problem is described by St. Augustine in the 4th century. He said, Our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Because God in Genesis 1 and 2 made us to find our rest in Him. That everything we're looking for, all of our deepest human longings and desires are found in Him. But in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve trusted the serpent, they turned away from God to find rest elsewhere but we will continually be restless until we come back to find our rest in Him. This command, Exodus 20, verse 3, that we read from the Ten Commandments, is um, you know, short and sweet. Uh, but there's an, uh, another thing in the Bible from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. It's on page 151 if you are using the Black Bibles here. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5 is what is famously called the Shema. Uh, practicing Jews will recite this morning and night. It's on your lips as you begin the day. It's on your lips as you end the day. And Jesus calls this uh, the greatest commandment, one of the two commandments on which the entire Old Testament hangs and depends on. And so Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, page 151, these two verses are exposition, you could call it, of Exodus 20, verse 3. It's a description, explanation of what it means to have no other gods before God. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verses 4 to 5, I'll read quick. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. So God says, you shall have another go- no other gods before me. Okay, what, what does that look like? Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5 explains it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And so that's what it looks like to have no other gods before God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The command is to love God above all else with everything that you have and everything that you are. And notice it doesn't say think about God above all else. It doesn't say believe God above all else. Love God above all else includes thinking and believing, but it's more than that because love is a relational word. It's an I mean, it's, there's so many things bound up in love. I mean, thinking, you know, thinking is just kind of a, it's a mind word. But love, it's a, 
a relational word. It's an action word. It's, a, it's an affection word. It's a desire word. It, it brings in all these things. And he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, directing our entire being toward God. No part is left out. There's, you don't give God part of who you are. You don't give God part of what you have. But he says, all of it, your entire heart, your entire soul, your entire strength, your entire might, you direct our entire being towards God. Everything we have and everything we are oriented toward God first and foremost, above all else. So you could say God is your first love. He ought to be your first love. He ought to be your first priority. He's the number one thing you cling to and confide in. You're loyal to him above all else. And God demands an exclusive relationship. He says, I'm not going to share you. I want all of you. I don't want to share you with somebody else. I want to be an exclusive relationship. We're not to divide our loyalties among everything, other things, giving God a piece of ourselves. He gets the whole thing. And there's a... a this commandment, have no other gods before God, is so important. I think, as I was reflecting on it this week, I was like, actually, there's the Ten Commandments. The first one is, have no other gods before me. You could go through each of the next commandments, all the other nine, and show how you would break those commandments because you put a God, another God before God. Why would you murder somebody? Well, because you're valuing something so much that you would murder somebody for it. You put something else above God, I'd love to do maybe, I don't know, a sermon or series on that at some point. But all sin begins with replacing God. You can see this in Romans 1. All sin begins with placing something above God, making something other than God first in our hearts. All sin begins with replacing God as our first love. And idolatry and sin, idolatry, worshiping false gods and sin, doing what we're not supposed to do, are the symptoms of disordered love. We have given our hearts to something other than and less than God. And the thing about love is that we love what we believe will give us what we want. We turn to idols when we believe that they will give us uh, what we want better than God could give us to us. And since ever since humanity turned from God, we're looking in all the wrong places to fulfill good desires. Ever since Genesis 3, we're looking in the wrong places to fulfill good desires. We're looking for love in all the wrong places. And you can think of worship as uh, worth-ship. The word worth and then ship. Because you worship what is of ultimate worth to you. And the reason it's of ultimate worth to you is because you trust it and hope in it to give you what you want, to fulfill your deepest longings and desires. And so what is an idol? To use Luther's definition, an idol is anything you cling to and rely upon instead of God. An idol is a God replacement. It takes the place of God in your life. An idol is a a man-made God replacement. It's a false God. And there's a whole, I have a whole list of like, I don't know, ten passages here where the Bible is talking about the foolishness of worshiping idols and almost making fun of it. You heard in, in Isaiah chapter 44, we read that, Whereas God, through Isaiah, is saying, you cut down a tree, and out of one part of the tree, you make a fire, you keep yourself warm, you cook your food. Out of the other half of the tree, you form it into a statue and bow down and serve it as an idol, as your God. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. What, one half was for the fire to make food, and the other half as a God. What are you doing? He's basically asking. Then we have uh, Isaiah um, 44, I'm sorry, 46, verses 1 through 7. 
I'm going to read just that passage, uh, page 607, if you're using the Black Bibles, Isaiah 46, 1 through 7. Notice what he says about idols here. I mean, this is all over the Old Testament. It's not just these couple passages. He says, uh, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. And they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And so the, the point is, you're carrying these gods around. You have to carry them from place to place. They can't do anything for you. They can't talk. You made it just as to sit there. And then God says, I've carried you, though. I've been the one carrying you. They can't carry you. You carry them. And so then also Jeremiah 10, verses 3 through 5, page 638. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. He says, A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. And so it's like, just like a scarecrow, just sits there. Can't speak, can't do anything. So it's like, don't be afraid of their gods. They can't do anything. These gods... In other words, God says they don't work. What you are looking to get from them, they can never give to you. A false god cannot give you what you want from it. They can't do what we ask them to do. And there's a reason that the Hebrew word for idol means empty and nothingness. You are worshiping emptiness, nothingness. They can't do anything for you. And we love what we believe will give us what we want. And that is what you worship. That's what you assign ultimate worth to to you, to and it's of ultimate worth to you because you trust in it and hope in it to give you what you want, to fulfill your deepest longings and desires. And we turn to idols when we believe they can give us something better than God could give it to us. The problem is that when we do this, we're deceived and believing a lie. Romans 1 says uh, that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship other things rather than our Creator. And this is what happened in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were deceived and they believed the lie that God was holding out of them, that going their own path, that what the serpent said, disobeying God, could get them what they really wanted. They believed the lie. And idols cannot give us what we want. They always overpromise and underdeliver. And they just are not capable of bearing the amount of desire we're putting on them. They can't are capable of giving us or asking them to give us. It's like hoping one of these folding chairs could hold an elephant. It's just they can't do it. And loving God, uh, in contrast, is not about denying our desires, but turning to God as the only one who can truly fulfill and give us what we desire. We are loving, desiring, and wanting beings. And as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O God. 
That's because there's a God-shaped hole in each of us that God made us with that nothing else can fill. Only God is capable of giving us our deepest longings and desires because he's the one who made us. In Jeremiah 2.13, um, God says to the people, you have forsaken the fountain of living waters, referring to himself. You know, having living water, that's like water coming out of spring. It's clean, it's not going to stop. And he says, you have uh, forsaken me. I'm the source of living water. And what you've turned to are broken cisterns. And cisterns were like these big um, containers that they would dig a hole, put it in the ground so that water runoff would go in it, rain would go on it. So then, okay, it's not a well where there's actually water coming up. It's that there is... Uh, just water that got stored up from the rain in there. And so it's like you would rather have a spring of living water versus this cistern, but they've turned away from the spring of living water, God that they have, to be satisfied by this cistern that's not only just a cistern, it's broken. So it's not even whole containing water. It's not even able to do what they're asking it to do, which is to give them water. And Jesus then comes and says to us, he says, I am, you know, uh, if everyone who trusts me, I'll give living water inside of you by the Spirit. And he came, said in John 10.10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Or some translations say, I have come that you may have abundant life. Jesus wants to give us life to the full. It doesn't, doesn't mean he says, he comes and says, hey everyone, your desires are out of control. You need to stop, you know, cut your desires off so you can be a good person for God. No, he says, uh, you guys are looking in the wrong places to fulfill your desires. I have come to give life that you may have it abundantly and in full. And I'm opening the way for you to come back to the one who's the source of living water who will uh, satisfy every one of your desires, longings, and wants. And the question we're answering is, where in my life have I gotten away from God? How can I return to him with all my heart? And so how can we see where we've gotten away from God? How can we see what we've begun clinging to and confiding in and relying upon instead of God. And um, I grew up hunting. Jonathan hunts currently. And one of the things about hunting is you can tell where the animals are because they often have a trail and that trail is going somewhere. It's either going to where they want to sleep or where they want to eat or where they want to drink water. And so you could walk into the woods and it's like, oh look, here's a deer trail. And you can just see it. And they're not just Animals aren't typically just like wandering around for entertainment, but they're going places to get what they need, what they want, water or food or, or safety. And they have, so they have these well-worn trails that show you their desires, their needs, their wants. I'm going here for my water. I'm going here for my food. I'm going here to, to sleep and uh, whatever else. And we too have those well-worn trails in our life, these trails that we take over and over again that show us, I'm going here to fulfill this need. I'm going here to satisfy this desire. We have these well-worn trails. I mean, we might call them habits, um, but habits uh, is one way to think of it. But well-worn trails of, I keep going to this because I think it's giving me something that I want, what I desire. And if aliens came to study your life, they would see those well-worn trails. Wow, every day you do this. Or every time this happens, you go and do this. You see these well-worn trails. So I've been, this week I was writing kind of a diagnostic tool. It's something that I use, this is kind of coming out of experience. I, there's been books that have um, informed it, but it's like, okay, this is how I diagnose my life to see um, when I might be placing something higher than God. So it's going to have a couple steps here. 
And so if you want to see what idols are in your life, what you're clinging to and confiding in and relying upon, here would be step one. Follow your emotions, or maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but track your emotions. Uh, Pay attention to your emotions. And feelings are a God-given gift. And as a gift, they can function as kind of dashboard lights, telling us when there's a problem under the hood. And there's you know, appropriate times to feel anger, no question, but is it righteous anger? It, should I be getting angry over this? It's like anger shows you, okay, there's something going on here. This thing, I'm angry because something matters to me. I'm sad because something matters to me. I'm excited because something matters to me. And when you feel those things, you can stop and find out, okay, what is this anger telling me about what matters to me? What does this reveal? What am I scared of? If I'm scared of something, there's something that matters to me. And there's an author named Ed Welch who's a counselor, and he says this, our emotions are our first response to the world around us. They appear without any apparent thought, yet they are much more than mere reactions in that they say more about us than they do about our circumstances. Our emotions, it turns out, reveal what is most dear to us. Our emotions point out those things that are most important to us. And so he said, he um, advises, pay attention to your emotions, especially the strong ones, anger, fear, shame, sadness, grief. And you could add also excitement, joy, happiness, passion. And he says, uh, he kind of goes through a couple of them. He says, when happy... We possess something we love. When anxious, something we love is at risk. When despondent, something we love has been lost. When angry, something we love is being stolen or kept from us. And so in your life, take notice of when you feel angry. I'm feeling angry right now. And what am, what am I getting angry and frustrated about? So I, you know, this is step one. You know, keep track of your emotions when you're angry, when you're afraid, when you're sad, those especially. And then also, I don't want to necessarily call these emotions, but it's kind of like a way we are feeling. If you're feeling tired or bored, I guess you could add in stressed or scared or angry. When you're feeling tired, bored, stressed, angry, scared, what do you do to find relief and comfort and satisfaction and joy? I'm scared. What do you do in that moment? What do you do to relieve that fear? I'm mad. What do you do to relieve that fear? When you're tired or bored, what do you do to relieve your boredom? What are you going to for comfort, satisfaction, joy, relief? So when you feel something, what are you feeling it about? And what do you immediately do to relieve that feeling? Secondly, so watch your feelings. Secondly, find the if only feeling it. Find the if only fueling it, not feeling it. Find the if only fueling the feeling, I guess you'd say and the if only tells you what you want. Why are you feeling what you feel? And when you have anger, fear, sadness, especially when it's out of proportion to the situation where it's like, okay, well, some, somebody else is like, I'm not sure why you're so angry. And you, that should be a good reason to stop and be like, okay, why am I so angry? It seems like this person doesn't see that that was kind of out of proportion to the situation. Why did I react with so much anger to this thing that um, isn't in proportion to what actually happened? And then, you know, so why are you feeling it? What do you do to make yourself feel better? And I mean, one of our things, our big things is, um, 
in social media or our phones. When you're bored, what do we do? Take out the phone. And it's like, we're going to that to relieve our boredom. Even when we're stressed, when I'm, especially, there's like a part of the sermon writing process that I enjoy. It's like looking at the passage, coming up with ideas. And then the part where it's like, okay, I have to like organize this and cut out things and like get it down to where this is going to make sense for other people. It is very hard for me to make that transition. And I will do everything possible if, to avoid doing that. Oh, you know, I'll just go check my email again. Oh, I'll check all these sites. I'll go check my seminary's website to see if there's any updates. There hardly ever is. I don't know why I check it. Oh, I'll go. I don't. I I used to be a web developer. Yes, I kind of still am. So I like seeing other churches' websites. Oh, check this person's website. Oh, are they doing anything cool? None of that matters. I'm just avoiding doing the thing that causes me discomfort and pain and difficulty. I'm looking to those things to relieve uh, my you know, I guess stress about entering into that next. Thing that I need to do. And probably looking at what do you do to make yourself feel better probably is what you spend most of your money and time on, perhaps not even realizing it. Because it's probably not something you have scheduled. I don't schedule in my day. Go check Trinity Evangelical Divinity School's website to see if there's anything new. It's just the things that are like the time leaks, the money leaks that you don't really see. I also make myself feel better when I'm bored. I walk out to the pantry and find a snack in there. And I'm looking to that thing to make me feel better, to give me happiness, to give me joy, to relieve my boredom or stress. And this is where a lot of addictions come in. And you can ask, what do you do to avoid feeling things? How do you numb yourself? How do you keep yourself from feeling what's inside you where you don't want to deal with it? And that's things I just talked about. And so watch your feelings. Um, find the if-only feeling it. I think I might have missed a section about this, if only, or it's on the next. So it's asking ourselves, okay, this thing is happening to me. And so I'll give you one example, I'll go into it deeper later, is that um, one of the times that I can get most frustrated and angry is when I say the same thing over and over again to Hudson, and he doesn't do it. That is a very frustrating moment for me. And so it's... The if only is I'm, I'm angry. Okay, what's my if only? If only he would just do what I say. If only I just didn't have to say this over and over again. If only this didn't take so long. And those things are going to lead us to somewhere of what we're actually wanting from it. So you have your if only. And so we watch our emotions. We find the if only feeling it. And then we ask, what do you want from it? What do you want from that if only? So for instance, for me, it would be, if only Hudson would do what I say then my life would be easier. I wouldn't be frustrated. I'd be less stressed. And really, I could do what I want. It's like, I want to get ready for work on time. I want to go watch this TV show. I want to go relax. And you're taking forever to do what I'm telling you to do. If only you would do this faster, then I could go and relax. Then I could do this. And so, like that book quote I said earlier, we often feel angry when something is in the way of what we want, of something that... It's important, it matters to us. In that moment, Hudson, I'm seeing him as in the way of me relaxing, of me watching my TV show, of me watching or reading my book. And so what are you wanting from it? It's if only blank, then blank. If only I had this, or only this would happen, if only this person would do this, then I would blank. And we can say, I'm looking for peace in people liking me. I'm looking for joy in getting to my TV show. I am looking for 
blank. I'm looking for peace in getting things done. And so that if only, what do you hope it will give to you? What are you relying on for it? And if only tells you what you want, but then, you know, if only, and then, then tells you why you want it, what you hope to get from it. Fourth, what is, how does it fail you? So the first question, the first thing is watch your emotions, keep track of them. Find the if only fueling it. What do you want from that if only? And how does it ultimately fail you? Because false gods may work, but it's always shallow and short and temporary. It's like empty calories. It's not good fuel. Uh, you might feel a little full, but it's in the end just giving you nothing and making you less and less healthy. That's what empty calories do. In the end, we're just left more empty. And then lastly, how does God give it to you better in Christ? So it's first, watch your emotions, find the if only fueling it. What do you want from that if only? How does it fail you? Fail you, and how does God give it to you better in Christ? And you can kind of change the if only to an only if. Only if I turn to God will I have the peace I'm looking for. Only if I turn to God will I have the joy I'm looking for. Only if I turn to God will I have the significance I'm looking for. And we can use the four G's. This is something here. I'll pass this around. A little box with the four G's in it. So if you don't have one of these, take it take it home with you. But the four G's. God is great, God is glorious, God is good, God is gracious. And so let me just run through it, uh, a couple of scenarios from my personal life. So you guys are kind of um, opening my journal a bit, to you, a, a bit to you and to show you what, what this could look like. So one, so one, emotion is frustration. And it's, as a pastor, as somebody who came to Woodstock to see people follow Jesus, I feel frustration in my... If only, if only we'd see lots of people surrender to Jesus for the first time. Then I'd feel like I have what it takes. I'd feel like I did a good job. I'd feel like you know, I did things right. I'd feel like I've proved myself. And what I'm really wanting is respect and significance and success. I want to feel like I'm not a failure. And so if only, all these people, if only a lot of people would come to Christ, then I won't feel like a failure. I'll feel significant. And the reason that this fails is because I can't control whether people surrender to Jesus or not. And even if I could, it would never be enough. Would 50 people be enough? Would 100 people be enough? It's a, whole, it's a God-sized hole in us that I'm trying to fill with things that can never fill it. And so that's never going to satisfy me. And so I can say, okay, God, um, you are great, so I don't have to be in control. I can't control what people do. I can't control whether people come and turn to you. And, uh, God, you are glorious. I'm trying to prove that I have what it takes. I'm trying to show people that I'm significant and that I matter. What I've done wasn't a failure. But, okay, God, you are glorious, so I don't have to fear others. You're the only one whose approval I want. God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. If only we would see this whole room filled with 40 people that had given their lives to Christ. Oh, that would be so satisfying. But it never would. It would never fill it. And so it's, I'm not, can't look for satisfaction. I, I need to look to God for it. And if I'm thinking, God, I need to do this to prove myself. I need to prove um, to me, to you, to anybody, you know, our church or anybody watching that I have what it takes, that I'm having the significance. And I say, okay, God, I, I don't need to prove myself to anybody. You are gracious and you love me, even uh, in, if I do fail. Another one, feeling sadness 
and anger about a relationship in my life that isn't where I'd like it to be. If only this relationship was better, if only they would give me what I want, then I'd be satisfied, I'd be at peace, I could rest. And so I'm angry at them because they're in the way. I want that peace. I want to feel you know, this cared about, or I want to, you know, this to be better. And I'm, so I'm angry because they're in the way, and I'm sad because of the grief involved. Like, it's not what it's supposed to be. And so there's sadness. And why this fails is because no relationship will be perfect. And I don't have control of it. And so it's, in some ways, God is good, so I don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. Is that, you know what? All my deepest desires are not going to be fulfilled in how things are on this earth between me and any other person because sin is always going to be in the way. But look, God has promised a future without sin where he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. So we worship an idol anytime we put something in God's rightful place. We worship an idol anytime we turn a good thing into a God thing. And this is idolatry because it's saying, I'm missing something essential to my life. I'm missing something essential to my love, my joy, my peace. I'm missing something essential to my sense of satisfaction, significance, and security. It is saying, God, you aren't enough to give me those things. It's saying, I need God plus this other thing so I can really have joy, peace, or security, satisfaction, significance. And so it's replacing God with something else, clinging to, confiding, and trusting and relying on that thing more than God. And so the thing people usually ask during the season is, what are you giving up for Lent? And I want us to consider, by looking at our life, what are those things we turn to instead of God? What have we replaced God with? And then consider, how can I give that up and look to God Instead, in those moments, choose God instead. It's not just about giving up, but giving up what you replace with God and choosing Him instead. There's an old hymn, and it says, one of the lines says this, When I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. Which is telling us that we don't praise or worship or look to God as we ought because we don't see Him as He is. And that's pretty clear teaching in the Bible, not just this hymn, but... It's like, if I really saw God as these four things, then I would praise him as I ought. So it's, when I see you as you are, I'll praise you as I ought. And so, um, let's just, let's pray that God would reveal these things to us, these well-worn paths in our life, where I keep going to this to get what I need instead of to him. Father, you are, are good. You've been with us, spoken to us. Lord, would you let us see those ways that we've replaced you in our lives. Would you let us see you as you are so that we would praise you as we ought to. So then we pray. Amen.